Welcome to Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. We would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Thank you so much today, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Colorectal Cancer Treatment, Progress and Advances. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Um, we currently have over 200 participants on today's program. We come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Lithuania, and United Kingdom. So it's a really a pleasure to have um, all of you on the call today. And um, you're really clearly a group of information seekers. And, um, and we're delighted that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson III, and Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson will be addressing an overview of colorectal cancer in the context of COVID-19 and Syrians, current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and targeted cancer therapies, staging and biomarker testing, predicting response to treatment, and the role of precision medicine, including heritable and non-heritable genetic and genomic testing. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, and welcome to all today, and thanks for joining us. First, I'd briefly like to talk uh, a, just uh, a bit about COVID. So for more than two years now, uh, we've noticed uh, significant decreasing uh, incidence of screening for colorectal cancer, delays in treatment, and even monitoring after treatment. Uh, these delays in screening are particularly worrisome because this results in delay of diagnosis and we've seen uh, people present with later stage disease. Uh, there are now efforts to try to catch up, um, but we're still very concerned that not everyone is receiving screening as they should. Very recently, we've encountered yet another problem related to the supply chain, which has been affected by COVID. So there is now a lack of iodinated contrast for CT scans, which is resulting in delays in terms of people having imaging. Uh, some are changing to non-contrast CT scans, which may be less helpful, or switching to MRI. So it, it's very important to talk to your doctor uh, about imaging. Uh, we're not sure how long this uh, lack of contrast will persist. Uh, we also certainly want our patients to be vaccinated. We don't want them to experience severe COVID. And also, uh, when we're planning treatment, we make sure that our patients are uh, COVID negative uh, before we begin uh, treatment. 
Uh, now I, I'm going to really focus on this concept of precision medicine. It is increasingly recognized through te technology, including much more in-depth evaluation of colorectal cancer tumors, that colorectal tumors are not all the same. Therefore, there is increasing emphasis on evaluating each person's tumor to create a biological profile using tumor from the person's actual colon or rectal cancer uh, or uh, from a metastatic tumor, such as from the liver or from the patient's blood. Evaluating tumor biology is even more complicated since a colorectal cancer is not just one type of tumor cell, but a collection of different tumor cells, which can vary within an individual as well as from one person to another. Uh, this phenomenon is called tumor heterogeneity and creates challenges as to which of the tumor cells are contributing to tumor growth, which are most resistant to treatment, and what drugs might be most effective to stop growth. There have been advances in colorectal cancer linked to the study of the biology through molecular profiling of tumors and next-generation sequencing. A very important newer area of technology advancement is the ability to locate circulating tumor DNA in a patient's blood, looking for potential treatment targets, but also evaluating patients to see who is most likely to recur from their original colorectal cancer and if treatment is being effective. This type of research is now uh, actively being conducted through clinical trials, and we would certainly urge people to participate in these trials whenever possible. One striking area of advancement across many cancer types, including colorectal cancer, is research at understanding the role of our immune systems and how that uh, plays forward in the development of cancers, which has led in turn to the development of specific immunotherapeutic drugs. In CRC, the most frequent current use of immunotherapy is for patients who have alterations in what is known as the DNA mismatch repair pathway. Pathologists now routinely report uh, any alterations when evaluating a CRC tumor, and all CRC patients should know their mismatch repair or MSI status. Uh, very briefly, uh, microsatellites are short repeating DNA sequences across the human genome. These sequences are very prone to errors, and there are genes that can actually correct these errors, these uh, type of errors. So uh, if a tumor has different mismatch repair proteins or microsatellite instability and errors are not correct, uh, corrected, tumors can then develop. Uh, these mismatch repair genes can be altered through germline or inherited mutations, and I'll talk about that again in a few minutes, or by non-inherited loss of expression. 15% of CRC tumors are deficient mismatch repair, and most of these are sporadic or non-inherited. 
most patients have earlier stage disease and do very well after surgery, but there are about 5% of cases have advanced or metastatic disease with uh, mismatch uh, repair. We know um, that the uh, human microbiome uh, has uh, evolved in uh, recent years. And uh, uh, this is likely uh, contributing to the development of cancers. Uh, for example, the yearly increase in numbers of younger people developing CRC may be linked uh, to these uh, changes uh, in the uh, microbiome. Um, I would say uh, also, uh, going back a, a little bit to this uh, area of uh, mismatch repair, um, the good news is that for patients with deficient mismatch repair, immunotherapeutic agents known as checkpoint inhibitors have shown significant benefits for those with metastatic disease, and it's become the mainstay approach. Despite these advances, there's still much we do not know, and clinical trials continue to learn more about the immune system and use of immunotherapy. Uh, and uh, also, you know, when I mentioned the, the microbiome, and uh, just for clarification, uh, the microbiome consists of microorganisms, particularly bacteria, that are a component of the intestinal tract and essential for health, including our immune systems. And so, uh, therefore, when we talk about these immunotherapeutic agents and the alterations in the microbiome, um, it's going to be uh, increasingly essential to establish the links and to see if there are actual interventions where we can address changes in the microbiome and therefore perhaps enhance our immune system and ability to uh, respond uh, to diseases such as colorectal cancer. For patients uh, with stage one, two, or three CRC, the most important biological test is this mismatch repair. For patients with advanced, recurrent, or metastatic disease, we routinely evaluate patient tumors and or circulating uh, tumor DNA for other genomic or molecular changes that are now linked to specific treatments. Increasingly, this is assessment is performed by next-generation sequencing or NGS that can evaluate hundreds of genes within tumor DNA, including relatively rare events such as NTRAC fusions for which there are now specific treatments. The most commonly identified observed changes, including RAS mutations, which occur in over 40% of individuals with CRC, BRAF mutations, which we see in about 10% of people, and for those with non-mutated RAS, known as wild-type RAS, we also look for HER2 expression. 
For those with RAS mutations, we know that the anti-EGFR drugs, cetuximab and panituvimab, will not work as they currently do for the RAS wild-type individual. Until recently, we have not had drugs for RAS mutations, but this is changing, and clinical trials are now reporting positive, revol- uh, positive results for subtypes of RAS mutations, such as the G12C mutation. We also now have combination therapies for BRAS-mutated patients, as well as for those with high uh, HER2 uh, expression. The majority of uh, individuals do not have inherited colorectal cancer, but it is important to identify these individuals since these are the people most likely to benefit from immunotherapy. I should add add as an aside, even if you do not have a known uh, inherited link to colorectal cancer, If there is a family member with colorectal cancer, that does put uh, other members um, at risk. And so it is very important to know your family history, including whether or not there's been a colon cancer that is thought to be inherited or there's no known inherited link. Uh, In addition, those with inherited cancers differ in terms of surgical considerations, type of surveillance after treatment is complete, and the need to test family members since those who are positive by testing need genetic counseling and appropriate screening. Those who have inherited cancers most often have what's known as Lynch syndrome. The tumor test we look for is known as microsatellite instability uh, or what is known as I talked about deficient mismatch repair. And uh, as uh, I mentioned, this is now uh, routinely reported by the pathologist uh, when we're uh, evaluating uh, a tumor uh, for diagnostic purposes, for example. However, uh, all told, about uh, 15% or so of people have these MSI tumors, and not all these are inherited, uh, and these are uh, clearly the individuals who may most likely benefit from uh, immunotherapy. So this is just a, a brief review of an increasingly complex area. Uh, But thank you for your attention, and I'll I'll turn this back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really outstanding. Just a stellar presentation for the participants and really set the stage for the entire program. So thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, but thanks. Thank you so much. Um, And our next speaker is Dr. Daniel Ahn, and Dr. Ahn is Consultant, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic, Medical Director, Clinical Research Office, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Phoenix, Arizona, Associate Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. 
And Dr. Ahn will be addressing the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, uh, communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns and follow-up appointments, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepare list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ahn. Great. Uh, thanks for the kind introduction, Dr. Mesner. So, um, kind of going along the lines of what you know, Dr. Benson uh, very eloquently pointed out, the question is, what are clinical trials and does it make sense for me or meaning you? You know, in terms of treatment options, when they get approved, including the treatment options that many of the individuals that are on the call may or potentially may be going on their family members, a lot of this has been established through clinical trials. And we can see that, you know, with these, with these modest incremental improvements over time through various studies, this has you know, ultimately led to improvement in outcomes. And so when you look historically in terms of, you know, not going into detail about numbers, when you look about, you know, what the average life expectancy for somebody who has advanced colon cancer, we can see that there's been a nice trajectory in terms of the time of, time of survival, and that has to do with these approval of these treatment options. A lot of times, a lot of these clinical trials may not make a lot of sense, or the question is, when is the right time to go on a clinical trial? And these are appropriate questions to ask uh, your, your physician or your provider. And there, there may not be a clinical trial that may make sense at one point, but potentially down the road, there may be. And a lot of this has to do with things like Dr., what Dr. Benson mentioned in terms of the genetics of your cancer, whether or not you may be a candidate to receive what we call immunotherapy, which are drugs that help stimulate the immune system or targeted therapies based off the genetic profile of your cancer. And so all these things are relevant questions to ask. You know, and for each individual or each patient, it's going to be different. And so whenever there's an opportunity for a patient to go on clinical trials, we often offer these studies to our patients if they make sense. And ultimately, they have to make sense to you. You know, I think a, one concern that a lot of patients often bring up to myself is, you know, is this clinical trial better than what I would have likely received, or is this a potential placebo? And so that has to do a lot with the phases of clinical trials. Most clinical trials that are, well, that most um, individuals are going to be participating in are not what we call placebo-based control trials. Most are looking at the standard of care plus another drug or another novel agent that could potentially improve outcomes. So usually placebo-controlled placebo trials are very rare and usually more the exception than I would say the rule. In terms, of, um, in terms of the treatment, whether you're on treatment on a clinical trial or standard therapy, a lot of concerns that people initially bring up is what are the potential side effects? You know, what may I experience, whether I receive chemotherapy or immunotherapy? And in terms of treatment, I would say the biggest advances that have probably been made over the past decade have been really with supportive medications. And so very rarely do we see significant side effects related to treatment, whether it's nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. Most of these are pretty well controlled with the medication that we give proactively before chemotherapy and stuff that patients take home. In very rare instances, you know, certain individuals may have some um, what we call enzymatic deficiencies where they don't have the proper enzyme to help um, metabolize or break down chemotherapy. So chemo can potentially be more toxic in terms of side effects, but usually that's very uncommon. I would say, you know, less than 10% for most for across people that, across, you know, all individuals here in the U.S. and across the world. But that is something that we do routinely test for depending on the institution. So that's something to take into consideration. In terms of telemedicine, this has been a rapidly evolving field. Um, thankfully, um, in large part due to COVID, where 
treatment, uh, we're, we're able to now, you know, thankfully due to Medicare and through some insurance providers, we're able to see patients uh, virtually through telemedicine or telehealth. And this has been a really, I think, integral part of how we practice now. And so this may have not been something that was routine for several years ago, but over the past two to three years, this is something that we often take advantage of. So if there's a reason why um, somebody can't come to clinic, whether it's because they're not feeling well, or actually probably what's more likely is if somebody wants to get a second opinion, um, telemedicine has been very helpful in terms of this instance. So, for example, at the Mayo Clinic, we often provide second or even third opinions through virtual consultation, where we're able to see the patients through Zoom or just through a telephone call that they would otherwise potentially may not have access to to talk to us about whether or not there may be something that we can offer them that they may be able to receive closer at home. That's really where the benefit of telemedicine or telehealth has been coming into, and it should be continued to be utilized at least in the near future, and hopefully this continues to be expanded across all of healthcare. And then in terms of, um, you know, how we think about symptom management in terms of cancer, I also often think about this being as a multidisciplinary role, not only dealing with your providers, meaning the medical oncologists, the radiation oncologists, or surgeons, but this is something that we often uh, integrate, um, you know, our palliative medicine colleagues uh, with in terms of how we can manage symptoms, whether it's pain, mood, appetite, uh, gastrointestinal side effects like diarrhea or constipation. And so what I think about most patients when they go through chemotherapy or through any treatment, the two things that we have to really balance or weigh out is the impact on one's quality of life and the goals for treatment to provide more time or what we say to extend one life. So as long as those two things come hand in hand, I think treatment often makes sense. Naturally, you know, there are going to be bumps in the road where we may have bad side effects, whether it's from chemotherapy, whether it's from immunotherapy, whether it's from surgery or radiation. And so that's really the goal for the providers to help balance or manage these side effects where we have you know, more good days than bad days, you know, um, and we're able to be able to, you know, meet the goals or what makes sense for each individual person. You know, some patients may decide that they want to stop treatment because the side effects may be too tough or they just may choose that treatment may not make sense down the road. And so this is a question that we often, we continue to reevaluate. Um, and as long as it makes sense and if treatment is being effective and if somebody wants to go through treatment, that's something that we have to take into consideration. But eventually there will be a time, um, you know, I don't have an answer, uh, where somebody may decide to stop treatment for whatever indication or reason. And that's it. Whatever that time is, it's the right time for that person. And so, ultimately, just as if, while we're trying to ultimately help treat the cancer, we also really have to be very cognizant about putting one's quality of life at the forefront about everything that we do. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Um, that was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation and also just um, very stellar as well and, and really covering a lot of important topics that are of concern to our participants, um, a lot of helpful tips, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey uh, VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition, nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. 
Um, your diet might be modified even before treatment starts, um, while treatment's going on, and even after treatment's completed. A lot of it has to do with how you respond to treatment, your course of treatment. Um, so it's very important that you're very uh, open with your healthcare team, communicating with them um, any side effects or challenges that you're experiencing. <clears throat> So some potential side effects that you may go through as you're going through treatment you may experience are things like we've heard constipation, diarrhea, maybe nausea and vomiting, maybe some changes in taste, a decrease in appetite, you might be more fatigued than normal. But side effects vary for each patient, really depending on their treatment plan and how they respond to treatment. Um, a dietitian is part of your healthcare team. They can help with modifying your diet based on the challenges that you're going through. Um, you know, some patients will go through a surgical intervention, maybe have an ostomy placed. Some patients may go through and have chemotherapy or radiation or maybe a combination of all of those three things or just a couple of those things. And so you might meet with other healthcare providers that help um, with management of some of these side effects that I've talked about, but I always want patients to know that we're all here, we all communicate with one another. So tell somebody whenever you're with them about what you're going through so they can then communicate it um, to, the, to the person that needs to be the best person to help support you. But I always let patients know, even if you're overweight, you can still become malnourished. Um, when your nutrition needs are not met, our body uses our protein or muscle for energy a lot of times. And when we lose our muscle, we have an increase in fatigue, and fatigue results in a decrease in activity and maybe a decrease in wanting to do the things that we enjoy and impacting our endurance. So. Um, we want to be very mindful of that. A lot of times a dietitian may be mindful of your weight trend, um, talk about with you what you're eating, what you're not doing well with, what you are doing well with to help you with avoiding that unintentional weight change. Now, side effects that we yeah, I kind of briefly discussed, and there are others that can happen, but um, there are medications a lot of times to help with the side effects. So be sure to communicate with your healthcare team. A lot of times sooner is better. Um, getting that support as soon as you can can help um, a cascade of things from occurring. So um, as far as nutrition goes, keeping a record of what you're eating. If you're having a side effect or you're feeling uncomfortable with something that you've, after eating it, um, let the practitioner know. It really helps us help you better. Um, a lot of times people don't think it's a big deal, they think, oh, it's a bad day, but even those, those little pieces of information can help us reduce maybe some of those bad days. Hydration is something that is also very important. And a lot of times we get focused on the calories and getting the protein in, watching your weight, and sometimes hydration gets left off the list, but it's very, very important that we stay hydrated during treatment. Um, radiation can actually require your body to, um, or increase fluid requirements for your body, um, even surgery, like I said, depending on if you have an ostomy, sometimes your fluid needs can change based on what your output is, some of the side effects that you're experiencing. Um, so. Just to give you some, some kind of guidelines, most patients need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. And a fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature. So things like water, milk, sports drinks um, are good places to start. And um, just again being in communication, we can 
kind of get an idea of our hydration status also by our urine output. Um, typically we want it to be as light as possible, um, but as your urine gets darker, that's an indication that maybe you're not well hydrated. So you can pay attention to that on a daily basis. Um, but in closing, you know, there are several members of the healthcare team. We're all here to help support you. And um, please know how to reach out to them. And, and the sooner the better, like I mentioned. I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was really wonderful and just a stellar presentation. And also really highlighting um, the, the, what you, what the access to um, dietitians in terms of what you may need. And also, um, your, the, the dietitian's ability on the whole healthcare team's ability to connect you with the appropriate members of the team that can help you with all your concerns and questions. So thank you so much, Ms. Bird. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. There always are. <laughs> and um, uh, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, so Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we provide services to people throughout the United States. For our international participants who are on the call, you can email Cancer Care with any concerns or questions you may have, and our oncology social work staff will assist you in getting the resources or your needs met because there are many resources internationally as well that we can connect you with, so that's really important to know. Um, so what are the services of Cancer Care? So many people call us on our HOPE line, an 800 number, and 800-813-4673, uh, and we'll speak with one of our oncology social workers. We have over 40 oncology social workers answering the phones and being there to help you. Those are the primary deliverers of service at Cancer Care. Um, and they all have master's degree in social work, and they will help you with a variety of things. They will provide support. We also offer online support groups. Um, we also um, have a case management team. So if we don't have the service that you need, our case management team will get you that service. They'll go with you virtually to a resource and connect you until you get your needs met. And many people have issues around, let's say, food insecurity, not having enough money for food or not having enough money for housing or other issues, and they will assist you with that. Um, we also offer practical financial and co-payment assistance, and this has always been important um, to people um, living with uh, all cancers, with colorectal cancer, any type of cancer, and those services exist um, for, um, for a reason, so that they do give people significant practical, financial, and co-payment assistance. And also, if we don't have the services you need, the financial assistance you need, we will connect you with other organizations. And it's okay to go to many organizations. We'll connect you, though, with them. We won't just give you a list. We'll actually connect you to them. And um, be sure that you get your needs met. Um, we also offer wellness circles, which are um, they're um, educational and, and emotional support groups in which uh, people participate on different issues and topics. Um, we also, of course, offer these workshops. Um, we also have a um, pet assistance program in which we will assist people who may have a cat or a dog and they're too, they don't feel well, not able to, let's say, change the litter box, or they're not able to take the uh, the dog for a walk, uh, or they may need help with the, you know, the food for their pet. So we will help through that program as well. So that gives you um, a thumbnail sketch of all of our services. And now I'm going to ask today to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So today, if you could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions and um, bring all of our speakers on board, and uh, we'll start the questions. Thank you. 
Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So a question for Dr. Um, Benson. I recently had a colonoscopy and my doctor removed an adenoma during the procedure. What is this? Is this dangerous? If you could address this question, Dr. Benson. So uh, a tubular adenoma, and I'm assuming that was what was removed, it is a type of polyp that has the potential to transform to an actual colorectal cancer. And in fact, this is why screening is so important that if we can locate these polyps and readily remove them, that's very effective in preventing uh, a colorectal cancer. Um, so what, what's important is to speak with the gastroenterologist as to when to repeat the next uh, colonoscopy as part of the screening. And, and that will depend on uh, situations such as number of polyps and so forth, uh, interval, if there's been a previous colonoscopy, when these type of polyps have been noted. Um, in general, though, people who've had a tubular adenoma are informed that the next colonoscopy would be performed somewhere between five and 10 years, providing there are no symptoms that develop in between, such as bleeding. But um, uh, removing a tubular adenoma can be curative and uh, one of the great advantages of screening. Excellent, thank you. Um, so a question um, for Dr. N. Um, can you give any information on the rare type of cancer medullary adenocarcinoma of the colon? Is it aggressive? Is it hereditary? Dr. N, if you could no, answer so that question. Yeah, so these in general tend to be sporadic, but the histology, as you mentioned, is very rare. So there's not a lot of data about how to treat these differently than uh, the other than what we think about the other subtypes of adenocarcinoma. So we extrapolate the data, meaning we use the treatment how we treat typical colon cancer the same way. But yeah, this is something that's very uncommon. And so the first thing question I would ask is um, to make sure that the pathologist you know, re-review the case to make sure that this is what is in fact. And if it is, then, you know, we still manage and treat it just like we would um, what we say any other colon cancer, whether it would be a cygnet cell ring or, you know, goblet cells. So we still treat it the same. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for um, Ms. Bearden. Does changing diets such as avoiding sugar, processed food, that is frequently promoted actually help reduce slow tumor growth and or make chemo more effective? Um, there's no strong evidence to say that, um, but what we can do is really review kind of what the American Institute for Cancer Research guidelines are as it 
pertains to nutrition, you know, during prevention, during and even after cancer, which really encourages avoiding a lot of sugary beverages, um, high-fat um, fried processed foods. Um, what we want to focus on, though, while you're going through treatment is your tolerance to treatment, what's working for the patient, um, what's best for the patient, what's going on with them. Um, you know, I know we have the guidelines and there's some great suggestions out there, but when it comes down to it, we really need to look at the patient as an individual and what they're going through and then what's working, what's working for them, what's not working for them. Um, I tell patients all the time, you know, throughout your course of treatment, your diet can change several times just based on what we're needing to do to help you get what you need during this time. And it may not always look like the guidelines, but it's a short, it's a season, and it's just a period of time within the treatment. And then as we get on the other side of treatment and, you know, the recovery side, then, then looking at some of those long-term, you know, practices are, are a little bit more appropriate. But, um, you know, I, I would urge you to definitely talk with your healthcare team. Um, I wouldn't do anything drastic just based on maybe something that you've read or, or heard or even what the guidelines say without talking with your healthcare team because what your needs are might look different at that time than what this ideal picture might be. And um, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong if you don't look like that picture all the time. It just means you're doing what's best for you. So um, it's, it's kind of a tough question because that, that, you know, there's a lot of different ways to answer it. But I, I always want patients to kind of remove the guilt um, while they're going through treatment. Sometimes they feel like, oh, I, I'm off what the recommendations are and is this bad? And um, I always want to just help ease some of that stress and say this is just a season. We're just going through a season of your treatment. And then you know what, in a week or two, it might look completely different. So um, again, talk with your team about what your needs are and, and they can best help guide you. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. And um, question for Dr. B uh, Dr. Benson. Um, um, when CEA results are irrelevant to evaluate patient CRC activity for possible post-treatment metastasis, which tests are more reliable? So um, there, there are several issues here. So uh, tumors uh, can change over time. So if, if before surgery a person has had a uh, negative uh, CEA, in other words, that it's normal, uh, that might be a good thing, but um, uh, over time, in surveillance strategies, if the recurrence develops, it's possible that the recurrence may have an elevation in the CEA. So we still follow the CEA um, uh, for people under surveillance. Um, I will say that um, if a person has metastatic disease, and a normal CEA, it's a little less likely that that CEA will be helpful. Um, if, uh, so we still follow the CEA, and we, we still uh, follow guidelines in terms of doing uh, CT scans after uh, surgery. Uh, the greatest risk of recurrence is generally 
in the first two to three years or so after surgery. And so we tend to focus uh, a great deal uh, during that time interval. Uh, after five years for colon cancer, it's very unlikely a recurrence will occur, but we still conduct surveillance with colonoscopy because that individual is at risk for a brand new cancer and we want to be able to detect polyps, for example, and remove them before they have a chance to become a, a cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, so, um, so this is for Dr. Ann. What are the different types of surgical procedures available, and what are um, the differences between them for colorectal cancer? Yeah, so the main two differences, for, so I would divide this into two categories. One would be colon cancer and the other would be rectal cancer. And so in terms of colon cancer, uh, the question is whether they may potentially do laparoscopic, which would be when they make a little incision and um, they go in there with the trocar, meaning the little tools where they could just uh, cut the tumor out or would they do an open resection. In terms of how they decide which procedure to go through, it just depends on the presentation usually of how somebody presents with their colon cancer, meaning is it something elective, meaning they found it on a colonoscopy and they went ahead and planned to get the surgery, or is it something that becomes more urgent or emergent if somebody presents with a blockage per se. In terms of rectal cancer, the two things that we tend to think about is an LAR, or lower anterior resection, or an APR, which is abdominal peritoneal, peritoneal resection. And that has to do with the location of the tumor. So when patients have lower tumors and they have to have a more invasive surgery, or somebody has a higher rectal tumor, meaning close to the colon, um, then they go ahead and do a less invasive surgery. So some of those can also change depending on the treatment. So if somebody gets chemotherapy or chemo and radiation, that may also ultimately affect the type of surgery one may have. So um, really, it all depends on the presentation, and meaning it's the tumor in the colon or the rectum, as well as whether or not um, the surgery, surgery is going to be done, again, electively or something more urgent that needs to be done in the hospital. Excellent. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Benson. Um, why would my doctor recommend chemotherapy before surgery for resectable metastatic colorectal cancer? So um, there, there are several reasons uh, for this. Um, and uh, one is particularly someone who has presented with metastatic disease, but is potentially a candidate for surgical removal of both the primary and the metastatic lesion, uh, we, we do want to make sure that uh, this person doesn't have uh, disease that could rapidly uh, progress. And so by giving chemotherapy first, we have what's kind of a test of time, but equally important, uh, we get to see if the tumor is sensitive to chemotherapy. And in fact, uh, sometimes with uh, shrinkage of the tumor, it can make the surgeon's job uh, a little easier. Uh, if 
if we determine there is sensitivity to the chemotherapy, often uh, the chemotherapy program is split. So people get half of the chemotherapy before surgery, and then because it's been shown to be effective, they get half of the chemotherapy after surgery. For someone who has had initial surgery for a primary colon cancer and that was treated, but then say two or three years later have been shown to have metastatic disease that's resectable, that's a situation where there's careful review. And, and I should emphasize for people with potentially metastatic disease, it's really important to have a multidisciplinary opinion. In fact, uh, in my center, we, we have weekly GI tumor boards, and people in this situation have their cases presented so we, we can get everyone's opinion as to whether someone should have treatment before surgery or not and what the surgical issues might be. But getting back to the situation where recurrence may have occurred uh, later on, uh, sometimes it may be very isolated and no further treatment would be given. Uh, but in, in many cases, uh, chemotherapy would be, uh, would be given uh, even if there was previous treatment uh, at the time of the original colon cancer diagnosis, again, to see if the tumor cells are sensitive and to make sure there's, there's not uh, rapid change, in, in which case surgery would not be helpful. So these cases uh, really require very careful review and input from the uh, medical oncologist uh, and the surgeon. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's excellent. Uh, great question. Excellent. Excellent answer. Thank you. And um, our next question is for Dr. Ahn. Um, um, I have a, a history of colorectal cancer in my family. Recently, I found blood in my stool, but tests came back negative for this disease. I am worried something was overlooked. Should I seek a second opinion? If you could comment on that, Dr. Ahn. Yeah. So bleeding can be physiologically normal. Um, not related to cancer, meaning they can be to other causes, like hemorrhoids is probably the first, uh, thing, first thing I think about, or even like anal fissures. Um, my recommendation would be to go ahead and get a colonoscopy, which it sounds like you've had, because uh, you said you've had testing or they felt it wasn't cancer. Um, what, in terms of a second opinion, I think the next step would be, uh, if, you were, if you were interested in it, would be getting another endoscopy. But I wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that bleeding is related to cancer, even though it's often associated with it. Excellent. Thank you. And um, a question for Ms. Bearden. Um, is, um, could you comment, Ms. Bearden, on, um, on the role of fiber in prevention and treatment of colorectal cancer? Sure. Um, so some of the guidelines, um, when we look at the guidelines for reducing our risk of cancer, um, it's, a, it's recommended to have a plant-based diet um, where three 
or excuse me, um, two-thirds of the plate is covered with a plant-based food, and one-third is covered with a lean protein. Um, there's, you know, discussions that we hear oftentimes about, you know, having enough fiber in your diet, and it's really a combination of both fibers. It's soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. But um, a plant-based diet um, includes fruits and vegetables and plant-based items as close to harvest as possible. So that's fresh or frozen. Um, and the idea is that fiber kind of works in two different ways. The soluble fiber works more like, um, I kind of use it as an example of like a glue, like a, it's, 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 if you had a piece of bread and you added water to it and you made a ball in your hand, um, it would be like a real doughy ball. Ball. And then the other type of fiber is an insoluble fiber. It's the fiber that doesn't change. It's like your celery, um, your broccoli. You know, you cook a roast. You can, you know, celery will look the same, you know, four days later. It just doesn't change because that fiber is really strong and um, its function is different. So the soluble fiber, like the soft fiber after you add a little bit of water to bread, kind of a doughy, really kind of brings um, our contents together when we're eating them. It kind of helps it all travel together down the GI system. And so its, its function is more to help with the mobility of our bowel. So like Metamucil is a soluble fiber. The insoluble fiber acts as, a, acts as more as a packing agent, so it works further along down in our GI system and our colon. And one of the reasons why it's important to have these two fibers when we're looking at colon health is that it helps really kind of clean the colon. It helps to, to um, kind of brush um, down the lining of the intestine to help, you know, get as much out of your body as possible so you can, you know, it's binding, it's bulking, and then you're eliminating. Um, that fiber really helps to bind all of the components and what we've eaten and what our waste needs to be to be out, to be eliminated. Um, it is recommended to have a plant-based diet. Like I said, it helps not only reduce our risk of, it helps reduce our risk of several cancers, including colorectal cancer, um, because our, our bowel um, contains a lot of different different anatomy. But the other thing is when we look at our high fiber foods, which is something sometimes we overlook, is that it's the actual food um, itself that is helpful. It's not the juice of the food. It's not something that we've eliminated from the food. But the phytochemicals, antioxidants, and, and really those cancer preventative components are actually attached to the whole food. It's actually bound to the fiber. And so when we remove the fiber, we actually remove a lot of the nutrients. The fiber also helps in cancer prevention because it slows the rate of our digestion so our body actually has time to absorb those nutrients in an appropriate way. Um, it, the fiber helps slow the digestion to the point to where, um, you know, all of those phytochemicals, antioxidants can be cleaved from the fiber and then our body can actually benefit from the protective mechanisms of those components. And then, of course, the digestive side of things where it's a bulking agent. It helps eliminate waste from our body that um, needs to be removed from our body, and the fiber just helps really bulk that and move that out.
Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And a question for um, Dr. Benson, the last question. Is colorectal cancer hereditary? Would my children be at higher risk of colorectal cancer? Since I have it, what can I do to get them to be more vigilant if they are at higher risk? Dr. Benson, if you could address this. So um, there, there are two issues which I alluded to. So first of all, if uh, a uh, say this individual has a diagnosis of colon cancer, but it's not inherited, um, the, the children do have a higher risk of developing colorectal cancer. And so um, what we do, uh, so if say someone is age 50, um, we normally, and they have a colon cancer, we would subtract 10 years from that age and recommend that family members be screened at least by age 40. Keep in mind that for the general population, it's now recommended that colorectal cancer screening begin at age 45. So if someone is age uh, 40, we would want um, uh, family members screened beginning around age 30. Uh, if there's a question about possible inherited colon cancer, we want people evaluated by genetic counseling so they can have the blood test, the germline testing to see if it's inherited. If it's inherited, then uh, the, the genetic counselor will give guidance about testing for uh, inheritance in family members. So if a family member is positive, carries uh, a gene um, for risk, then um, there are very uh, specific guidelines as to how to screen a person over their lifetime. If they test negative, then they, they do not need to be concerned about an inherited risk, but would certainly want to follow standard guidelines in terms of screening. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. And um, so I do want to comment about the fact that we do have many more people in queue to ask questions. And so I want to go over with all of you um, that we could go on for another hour, but this is an hour program. And um, so I just wanted to um, clarify, what, what do we do for all of you who didn't get to ask your question? But for all of you, actually, for those who got to ask a question, for those who have a question that they were waiting in queue to ask, and for those of you who have a question that you might be thinking about asking, we'd like you to take what you've learned on today's program back to your treating healthcare team. They, of course, know you the best, and to some extent, they are best able to address your questions so you got some information today, but they can address it specifically around you because they have your chart, they have all that information about you, and they can really be particularly helpful in your specific, all the specific um, information they have about you. So that's really important. Um, and um, please recognize your healthcare team. I think our speakers have addressed this, consists of many people and many professionals. And those professionals meet in some centers, as Dr. Benson pointed out, on a weekly basis to go over treatment for people with colorectal cancer or in, with other types of cancers as well. And um, so you should know that 
um, that team consists of your oncologist, the surgical oncologist, other members of the team, oncology nurses, oncology social workers, financial specialists, patient navigators, a lot of different people who actually um, can assist you with all kinds of questions that you may have. So um, please do not leave this program feeling you're alone in coping with your cancer, colorectal cancer, any type of cancer. Please know that you're part of a community of support and they're all here to help you. And to some extent, um, do not hesitate to ask about a question that of your oncologist that's really troubling you or of concern because they will be able to connect you to a member of the team that could help you. And we have given you the information about cancer care. And we also will be giving you information about other organizations that are specific to colorectal cancer that are good resources to go to. We don't want you just Googling information willy-nilly on the website and just learning stuff that way. We want you to go to really credible sites that are carefully reviewed um, and monitored with the most up-to-date information. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.